You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. I don't know if you've noticed that sometimes the best parts of life are really closely tied to the worst parts of life. Today I want to look at the passage that we just read because this is one of those times when the very worst uh, time in Israel's history is matched with one of the greatest promises that God ever makes. The two belong together. Uh, What we're looking at today really gives us a window into the whole Christian message. Uh, The worst and the best at the same time. So, one of the worst moments. We are uh, going through the Bible from cover to cover this year, uh, and it has been a ride. I'm really enjoying it. And we are going to land uh, right at the end of the Old Testament by our anniversary Sunday. And uh, so congratulations, because a lot of us have not read the Old Testament. A lot of Christians, I find, have never been through the Old Testament, maybe through the new, but not through the old. And I hope that so far you've been uh, enjoying uh, the ride so far, if you've been following along. If you're not reading, even the Sundays, I think are enough to, I mean, not enough. Read the whole thing. You can't beat reading it. But if you only get the Sundays, uh, it at least has given you a taste of what the Old Testament is about. And today we're coming to a guy called Ezekiel. Who was Ezekiel? Ezekiel was a prophet who served during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, If you were here last week, I said the one date that you need to memorize in the Old Testament. Did anybody do it? Harold, 586. Uh, Harold, you get an extra coffee today, so congratulations. 586 BC, the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem. This is like the lowest point in Israel's history uh, because God had said he was going to live among them, he was going to give them land, uh, he would uh, allow them to dwell securely in the land. Well, 586 BC, the Babylonians come, they destroy Jerusalem completely, they cart everybody off, not everybody, but most of the people off, the king, the important people, they leave the poor people behind. This is devastation. This is like the temples destroyed, the wall is torn down. It's a disaster. Well, along comes Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was actually, uh, his story begins a little bit before this happens. Ezekiel comes along, and it seems like the Babylonians actually began to take people from Jerusalem before they destroyed Jerusalem. And Ezekiel was probably one of the first to go. He was carried into exile some 10 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, along with the royal family. So he was one of the first to go to Babylon, and he's kind of like, he's got a bird's eye view from hundreds of miles away to see the destruction that is coming to Jerusalem. So I have to warn you, Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel, uh, if you're following the reading plan, Ezekiel is trippy. There's only one word for Ezekiel, trippy. There's a, I read this week, a, dis, a good description of Ezekiel. He is one of the greatest spiritual figures of all time. Okay, sounds good so far, right? Everyone tracking? One of the greatest spiritual figures of all time, in spite of his tendency to psychic abnormality. <laughs> And then uh, here's what it says. Ezekiel's behavior has been called many things. Pathological, psychic, schizophrenic, epileptic, catatonic, psychotic, and paranoid. I don't know about you. Uh, September 24th is my last day here. 
at the end of the service, I don't want to be like, oh man, like it's been a good ministry. And I don't want you guys to be saying, you know, Daryl, the one word that comes to mind about your ministry is uh, catatonic or psychotic, you know, paranoid. Uh, but these are the words that you could describe Ezekiel. Ezekiel is hardcore. And so a lot of people would say, uh, no, I've never done this, but if you're going to read a book of the Bible on certain substance, mind-altering substances, Revelation might be one of them. Ezekiel might be another one. This book is so strange that some Jewish rabbis wouldn't allow men to read their, this book until they were 30 years old because they were afraid that it would be too hard and perhaps too weird for them. So can you imagine, what are you reading? Ezekiel. That, you know, wait till your father hears. Don't read Ezekiel. You're not old enough to read Ezekiel. It gets pretty weird. But today's passage uh, is not the weirdest passage in Ezekiel. Uh, believe me, if you read Ezekiel, you will come across some strange passages. And by the way, I'm, all of us to say, this is God's word. So I, in all of this, I don't mean to say that I'm not putting Ezekiel down. I'm just saying God speaks through a variety of voices. Uh, some of them are meant to jar us to attention. Some of us are meant to stretch our mind. And Ezekiel is one of those. Uh, praise God for Ezekiel. He was uh, sent by God with an important message and one that is challenging for us. So here's a passage that we're looking at today. Ezekiel is in Babylon before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he has a vision. In chapters 8 and 9, so he's hundreds of miles away, and he has this vision of what's going on in the temple. He sees the wickedness, the atrocities that are being committed in the temple. And so a picture of Ezekiel there going, why is God so angry at Israel? And it's almost like God opens his eyes, and he sees the evils that are being done in the temple. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel's like, oh, of course, God has to judge Israel. Like, I can't believe the evil that's being done there. Well, then Ezekiel goes on, his vision continues, and he has a vision of the Babylonians coming to conquer. Remember, that hadn't happened yet. So Ezekiel's like, oh, I see the evil, and now I see is the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. There, and he has this very vivid picture, a siege, starvation, death, the capture of the city, the destruction of the city. And so Ezekiel's seeing all this before it happens. Like he sees the evil, and then he sees what God's going to allow to happen, the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not even the worst vision that he has. Here's the worst vision that he has. And you, so I hope you're wondering, what could be worse than like atrocities in the temple? What could be worse than the Babylonians coming and killing and destroying the city, like people starving and dying and being killed? What could be worse than that? I'll tell you what's worse than that. Then he has a vision, and I'll just give you a few highlights, uh, because this is so vivid. Chapter 8, verse 4, listen, listen to this vision. And behold, the glory of Israel was there, meaning in the temple. Okay, so far so good, right? The glory of God is on the temple. He can actually see God is in the house. Picture this. There was a time in history where God had a postal code. Like, where does God live? Oh, that's easy. God has chosen to have the temple in Jerusalem be where he lives. We know God's everywhere. Solomon said uh, the, no building can contain him. But for all intents and purposes, God says, this will be the special place where I live. So in chapter 8, verse 4, behold, the glory of Israel was there. God was there in Jerusalem. 
God lived among his sinful people. Can you imagine being a real estate agent in Jerusalem? Oh, it's such a great neighborhood. Like, you're only steps away from the best neighbor in the world. Like, you can see the temple. God lives there. And Ezekiel has a picture of God there. Chapter 9, verse 3, though, the vision continues. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. So right away, cherub, get rid of the, like, if you think of a cherub now, what do you think of? A cute little baby, right? A baby angel, like, so cute. That's not what a cherub is. A cherub is like, in the Old Testament, uh, it's kind of the highest, uh, one of the highest angels, uh, like a guard for God. And here we read that God actually uh, was resting on this cherub. So it's closely associated with the presence of God. And this should concern you, because Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God rising up from where it normally dwelled in the threat, and uh, it moved to the threshold of the house. You know those things when you're at somebody's house, and you, you know the whole dance that happens, right? Like, oh, this was such a good night. We should be going. Look at the time. And then you move. Where do you move? To the threshold, right? You're going out. And then you talk for another 20 minutes. Oh, it's been such a good night. And like, you know, the Blue Jays, like, and then after a while, like, it's like, we've moved to the threshold, but we're still in the house. That's what God is doing. A slow, gradual move. And then in chapter 10, verses 18 to 20, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. So it's like, God rested, God was in his dwelling place, got up and moved towards the threshold and was moving farther and farther away. Uh, and then in 11, 22 and 23, in the chapter we read, we didn't read this far. It says, and then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. That's a whole one of the trippy parts of Ezekiel 1. Uh, read it, Ezekiel 1 will blow your mind, it's kind of weird. But anyway, the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of God of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord. This should break our hearts as we read it. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God is moving out. What is worse than the Babylonians coming and destroying the people? What is worse than the atrocities that happen in the temple? God is saying like, it's been a good time here. I'm moving. Like I'm out of here. I've had enough. I am on the move. I don't live here anymore. Think about this. Um, okay, so if you have a neighbor and you find out you're, one day you're on Facebook and you find out that one of them is looking for a new place and you message like, we didn't realize you guys are moving. And the reply comes, well, we're not moving. Only one of us is moving. You're all of a sudden, you're like, no, like they're breaking up. This is awful. This is what's happening. God is saying, hey, I'm leaving. I've had enough. I'm moving out. I'm gone. You know, the one thing that made Israel Israel is that God was with them all the time. Like, think about this. Uh, if you're, if God is with you, that makes, like, if God is actually with you, that makes all the difference. For instance, when, you remember when Egypt, this is way back in the story, they were in Egypt, they were captive, and, uh, they're crying out to God, like, rescue us from Egypt. And one night, Pharaoh lets them go. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, wait a minute, what did I just do? I'm not letting them go. And Pharaoh chases them. 
And we read that the Egyptian army was this close to them, but God was in between as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was with them. And the Israelites look back and go, oh, those Egyptians, like there's, I would be scared of them except God is with us. Like we don't have to be afraid, God is with us. And then Israel, you remember they built a golden calf? And God said to them, I'm so fed up with you, I'm not going with you. And Moses cries out to God, he says, God, if you don't go with us, don't even, we're, we're not going. Like if you don't go with us, I don't see the sense in going. It'd be like if I said, well, this happened actually. Uh, years ago, I candidated at a church. I, went, I drove, took the train to Kingston. I came back, I told Char about the church. Like I wasn't, I didn't know, I was just exploring options. This is like 15, 20 years ago. I came back, I said, told Char about the church. And she said, well, you can go, but uh, I'm not going with you. I just sensed God closing that door right at that moment. Because I was like, Shar, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Like, I'm not that bright, but I know if Shar's not coming with me, it's not a good idea. And Moses says to God, God, if your presence doesn't go with me, don't even send us. How can it be known that we found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not with your going with us that we are distinct, uh, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? What sets Israel apart? Only one thing, that God is with them. That's the only thing. They weren't any better. They weren't any, in, in any way. They weren't smarter. They weren't more obedient. God was with them. Moses knew that if God didn't go with them, they had nothing. And so eventually they built the temple. People ask me, what, if I could pick any event in history to go witness, what would I picture? And there's so many cool things, right? Uh, what would you go back and see? Like, would you go see Jesus preaching? Would you go see the uh, Jesus being crucified? Would you see the resurrection? What would you pick? Well, one of the events for me would be this one. Uh, Solomon builds a temple for God. And as he dedicates it, an amazing thing happens. I think of it of all the things that I would picture, this would probably be the one, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but this would be my favorite, I think. As Solomon dedicates the temple to God, we read this. The priest came out of the holy place and a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? Solomon builds a temple, and at the end of it, they're like, eh, that's kind of nice. Like, it's a, look at the gold. And that, but the thing that sets it apart isn't like, look at the architecture of the gold. The thing that sets it apart is, boom, like, there's a cloud. The priests have to get away from there because there's just a visible sense of the presence of God there. God was present with his people. This was a huge deal. And then in this vision, Ezekiel sees God get up from the temple and move away and say, I want nothing to do with my people anymore. And actually in chapter 11, we read that he goes to be with, uh, in Babylon with the people in exile. And so for Ezekiel, the problem isn't the Babylonians. That's a symptom of the problem. The problem is that God has left the building. The problem is that the fundamental reality that set them apart was the presence of God in their midst, and now it's revealed to be nothing but a hollow shell. The glory of God has departed from their midst, and it's left the city ripe for destruction. What it means is that they think they're still okay, but 
they're doomed. Like, the minute God leaves, they're doomed. It's over. God has abandoned them to their doom. Their goose is cooked at this point. I would argue that this is maybe the worst event in Old Testament history. Uh, now, I argued, I think I argued last week, 586 BC, the destruction of Jerusalem was the worst event that happened. I want to modify that a little. This is kind of like the underlying cause of the worst event. This is like the worst event before the worst event. God has fled them. And here's a message. Uh, God is gracious. God is patient. God gives chance after chance after chance. But when we persist in rebellion against him, eventually, if we say, I mean, if we reject God and say, God, like, we want nothing to do with you, eventually God will say, I hear you. I, your wish is granted. I will have nothing to do with you either. If we persist in a rebellion against God, God is gracious and patient, but not forever. There comes a time when God will hear our rejection of him and will abandon us despite his grace and his mercy. Uh, years ago, I had a friend who was horribly treated by a church and uh, was really struggling with, like, do I continue at this church? Uh, it just seems like, you know, do I leave this church? It's horrible. And brought a friend in. The friend came in and took a look at the church, came to a meeting, listened to the leaders, uh, listened to all the people, and at the end went to this person. This person's like, is it okay to leave the church? And he said, it's more than okay. God left this church years ago. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Picture that things are so bad. And this is what happened. The very center where God lived. God left. God said, I have nothing more to do with this. I'm done. To quote somebody, God's presence can be removed from a church just as it abandoned the temple, leading, that church, or le uh, leading to that church becoming nothing but a hollow shell. Outwardly, everything may still seem to be in place, but the internal reality of God's presence is it's only a matter of time before the entire edifice collapses. And by the way, somebody said, would we notice? Would we notice if God left? Uh, I hope so. Would we notice that there was something missing? Like there's something, we're still doing the services, we're still doing everything, but if God has left, man, I hope everything falls apart. The day that God leaves and says, I'm done with you guys, I hope that we're just like, what's going on? Like, anyway, this has got to be the worst moment in Israel's history. But as I said at the beginning, it goes with one of the greatest promises. By the way, are you depressed yet? Like, what a depressing sermon, right? I told you, I'm, this is Ezekiel. Like, read Ezekiel, and it's trippy, it's disturbing. But here's the amazing part that goes with this worst moment. The passage that Gottfried read for us today, at the very lowest moment of Israel's history, comes, I would say, the greatest promise in the Old Testament. At the very lowest moment of Israel's history comes the very greatest promise of all the Old Testament. In the middle of this horrible vision of God abandoning his people, Ezekiel says there's hope. And here's what he says. The exile's happening, but it's temporary. God is going to do something that we desperately need. So Ezekiel 11, verses 17 to 20 says this. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered 
and I will give you the land of Israel. Now just remember, uh, Ezekiel just had a vision of the Babylonians conquering and taking them to exile. And God's already said before it happened, I'm going to gather you again. Uh, I'm going to give you the land again. God's discipline is, it's a, a discipline. It's for a purpose. It's not his rejection of us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to understand God might discipline us. It is not a rejection of us. God is not done with us. God says, I will gather you. I'm not done with you, my people. And then he says, uh, and when they come there, when they, uh, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. Ezekiel just had this vision of all the evil things they're doing in the temple. God's like, when I bring them back, those bad things won't happen anymore. And here's the greatest promise, I think, of all the Old Testament. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they will be my people and I will be their God. Ah, oh, read this, like memorize this, meditate on this. This is amazing. God says, number one, I'm not done with you. I am not done with you, my people. You've given me every reason to, like I've left. I'm so fed up with you, I've left, but don't think I'm done with you. God is saying to his people, this is a, this is a separation, this is not a divorce. Like, I am not done with you. I will bring you back. And here's what else he says. He says, by the way, the, the problem isn't the Babylonians. Their problem wasn't that they were far from home. The problem isn't that they needed to, like, pull up their straps. Their problem went much deeper. They needed new hearts. God promises them at this point, not just that I will forgive you, but I will restore you. I will give you brand new hearts. I will not just undo your past. I will actually deal with the underlying issues that caused the problems. I am going to fundamentally change your relationship with me and with the land. Ezekiel gives a stunningly accurate diagnosis of our problem and a very hope-filled solution to our condition. I've done enough marriage counseling to know uh, when there's deep trouble, there's often a separation. Uh, and the separation begins relationally, but ultimately the separation becomes manifested in their relationship. They can't stand to be in the same room together. And many times they uh, separate physically. They go into different places. Now, when you bring them together, you realize you can't just bring them together again. You know, there, there really needs to be a fundamental change. And the, the, actually, there needs to be more than just forgiveness, because forgiveness deals with the past. We still have a present to deal with. So there needs to be a, a reconciliation. There needs to be a forgiveness of the things that are past. But actually, there needs to be a fundamental change of heart that allows them to relate to each other differently. And friends, I've experienced this in my marriage. I think I've told you many times I was a lousy husband, and there came a time when I thought the problem was Shar, and uh, that actually revealed the problem was me. The minute I thought the problem was her, that reveals where the problem is, actually. Uh, the problem is that I was accusing her rather than looking at my, you know what God did? God changed my heart. He had to before there could be a bringing together. And here what Ezekiel says is, look, I'll tell you what your problem is. The problem isn't the Babylonians. 
The problem isn't the other people. The problem is you. And let me tell you exactly what the problem is. You have a heart of stone. Your problem isn't that you need to be a little bit better. Your problem isn't that your heart is, is like the Grinches and it needs to grow a few sizes. You know, it's a few sizes too small. Your problem is actually that you have a bad heart. Now, I'm no cardiologist, but a heart of stone sounds really bad. A stony heart is dead, unresponsive to God. And Ezekiel says, that is our problem. We don't just need forgiveness. We need more than forgiveness. We need new hearts. Ezekiel has already spoken in his book about the problem that people have taken idols into their hearts. An idol is something that we value more than God. We're all idolaters. I'm an idolater, you're an idolater. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. We continually manufacture things that we love more than God. And God looks at them and says, your whole problem is your idol factories. You love everything more than me. In chapter two, verse four, Ezekiel has called them hard-hearted. And in verse three, chapter, uh, chapter three, verse seven, he said that they have stubborn hearts. They have hearts of stone. Hear this, Christianity is not about us becoming slightly better people. It's not about self-improvement. If somebody said it's not, church is not about a good person telling good people to be a little bit better. We need more help than that. Our condition is far more serious. What we need is radical surgery, the removal of a defective and fossilized organ and its replacement with a sensitive and responsive heart, a heart of flesh. And that's exactly what God promises to do. Friends, here's the thing about Christianity. Often people will say, come to Jesus and you will be forgiven. And that's true. Can I just tell you that's only the beginning. The message of the Bible is come to Jesus and be forgiven. And that's only the start. He will give you a brand new heart. It will you will be totally different. I've seen this over and over again. Somebody comes to Jesus and they're forgiven. They go because, I don't know, there's all different reasons to come to Jesus, but they come to Jesus and they feel like forgiven. But God gives them a brand new heart. I've actually talked to, uh, I've, I love the stories of somebody who comes to Jesus and the next day they're ready to sin and they, they're ready to sin like doing sins they've done many, many times, sins that they love to do. And they're about to do it, and they catch themselves and go, I don't want to do it anymore. Like, something's really changed. What is it? God gives us brand new hearts. God doesn't just change our behaviors. He actually changes our desires. He fixes our wanters so that we actually want to follow him from our hearts. Hear this, friends. At our worst moments, even when we feel like God has withdrawn his presence from us, even when we feel like God has rejected us completely, God gives us the greatest promise. Not only will our sins be forgiven through the work of Jesus on the cross, but he will actually change you from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will go to work in you and completely change you, and you will be a completely new person. Now, people will come to you and say, there's something different about you. Uh, there's just something radically, who are you? Like you're you, but you're not you anymore. He will give you a brand new heart. And how do we receive these? 
It's a gift from God. The only way we could get them is to simply receive them. We can't manufacture them. We can't change our own hearts. We come to God with empty hands of faith and just say, I want that heart. I want a brand new heart. And he will completely remake us out of love. Our problem is severe, and the solution is that we need a new heart from God. I don't know how many people are C.S. Lewis fans here. If you haven't read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, there's a couple illustrations that I could have used. I really debated between the two. There's uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a cottage, and you kind of think God's going to maybe fix it up a little bit, you know, fix a little thing here, a window here. And God's like, no, I'm completely going to, like, remake. Like, I'm not going to just do a fixer-upper. I'm, this is a teardown. I'm going to completely remake you. But I actually thought of another story that he told. You know the annoying little boy named Eustace? And one day he becomes so greedy that he becomes a dragon. You have to use your imagination here. He steals a gold armband and he puts it on and he finds that the greed has turned him into a dragon. And by the way, what a, just like Tolkien in uh, uh, the, his amazing, amazing trilogy, like what an p- amazing picture of what sin does. We think sin's gonna fulfill us. It actually distorts us. It actually robs us of our humanity and destroys it. Anyway, so he becomes this dragon and the armband becomes excruciatingly tight on his dragon foot. And he gets so frustrated until he meets a lion, Aslan, who tells him to follow him to a high mountain well. And Eustace longs to bathe. He, like every little boy, knows what it's like to swim in, a, in out, water outside, in the cool water. But the lion says, before you, need to go, before you go in the water, you've got to undress. And Eustace looks at his He's a dragon, right? He's like, how do I undress? I've got these scales. He can't. He can't undress. And so he scratches at his his skin, and the scales start to fall off. And soon he loses a whole layer of scales. But there's another layer. He can't. No matter how much he strips off, he can't. He realizes, he looks at his skin and realizes it's just as rough and patchy as before. Well, he continues and realizes that no matter what he does, he can't get rid of his scaly skin. There's nothing he can do. He needs help from outside himself. And finally, the lion says to him, you have to let me undress you. You can't do it yourself. Let me do it for you. And the lion comes with his lion's claws. Eustace is terrified, but he's also desperate to get in the water. And that first tear of the lion's claws is painfully deep. And the lion begins to peel away the skin. Surely I'm about to die, he believes. But the lion goes to work. The gnarled mess of dragon skin falls away. And the lion holds Eustace and throws him in the water. And Eustace says this, it hurt like anything, but only for a moment. After that, I became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm and I saw that I turned into a boy again. What does Jesus do with us? We're trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to strip away the scales, but no matter how much we strip away, there's nothing. We can't. There's no way we can get rid of the scales. And the lion comes, Jesus comes, and he says, you got to let me do this. And we're terrified. Jesus comes, and he says, let me help you. And he turns us into humans, 
again. The surgery is major, but it's always successful. He will strip away everything that needs to go and give you a brand new heart. Lord, this is such an amazing picture from Ezekiel. Lord, at the worst moment, God has left the building. You give the greatest promise. You offer us, Lord, not only forgiveness, but transformation. Thank you for not only forgiving us, but giving us completely new hearts. I pray for anyone here who feels those scales on their skin. And they've been trying all this time to strip off the scales themselves. Lord, help them today to give up. May it be a freeing thing. Help them to just relax and say, I can't do it. And then help them to come under the claws of Aslan the lion, who's ready to help, who's ready to transform them, to strip, to strip all the scales off and allow them to be human again. Even right now, Father, I pray they would turn to Jesus and not only know the forgiveness of sins, but the transformation, the, the gift of a brand new heart. And Father, I pray for those of us who've come to Jesus. So often we believe like we're still the old people, uh, but help us to see, Lord, the Holy Spirit is within us. He will not let us go. Slowly, he's transforming us. He's given us new hearts. So Lord, would you complete that work of transformation? I pray that you would continue that work until that one day when we see Jesus and we will be perfectly whole. Thank you for Ezekiel. Thank you for this amazing promise. We turn to Jesus today and trust in him.